You're listening to Wake Up Tucson. This podcast is a Bustos Media production on The Voice. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. All right, let's get to it. You're on the third hour of Wake Up Tucson. And of course, as you know, we cover food pretty heavy on this show uh, over the years and with local local uh, restaurateurs every Friday, national guests, and uh, very happy to have uh, for our next interview, uh, the book is, the new book's called On the Curry Trail, and on the line is Raghavan Ayer. Raghavan, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me on. And uh, one of his previous books is 660 Curries. So uh, I got the book a couple of days ago going through it, and uh, it, 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 I guess the, you really go deep on the journey of curry to kind of become uh, the, one of the world's or the world's biggest comfort food. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a, a too much of a simplification. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I believe it is. You know, I mean, it is... Um the simplicity of a curry that also elevates it to a status that I think is really quite um, breathtaking. And um, flavors that we pull out of it really are quite um, meaningful. So, yeah, I, I feel like curry has a rich history and there's a reason why. So we talk about the two kind of definitions of curry, right? There's the spice blend curry and then there's the dish curry, right? Yes. Are, are there... Indians, it's... <laughs> we just lost Raghavan. I'm so sorry. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's the power of curry powder. <laughs> so when we're talking about the two definitions uh, of curry, you said Indians and then you started coughing. So, <laughs> Yeah, Indians... Um, you know, like their sauces, and to us, sauces are curries. When the English came on board, they loved the sauces they sampled and they put them into a jar, labeled it in a powdered form and called it curry powder. And that's how the rest of the world tried to process it. So, and we we took that and we spread that gospel right around. <laughs> The uh, I was uh, listening to an interview uh, with uh, Madhur Jeffrey. Um, just it's interesting. It was like a couple of weeks ago. Came up on my feed, and uh, she was talking about uh, how, of course, curry is in, of course, England, probably the most popular food in England. And she she kind of gave mm-hmm. it a, she gave it a little bit of a uh, she kind of mentioned the phrase reverse colonialism right through the food and the curry coming back the other way. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know I mean that's what the English were good at. They were masters at colonialism. (laughs) Excuse me, this is my... I have a tumor, and um, the tumor sizes are growing, and so the coughing is a result because of that. I'm sorry to hear about that. I apologize. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, you know, um, the colonials did a lot of damage. Uh, people say, oh, you know, they did infrastructure and stuff. But I said, yeah, it's more for their well-being. They 
wanted it so that they could get from point A to point B. And that's why, you know, you see the spread of, um, you know, um, rails or trains and automobiles and so on. So would that same transportation, um, would that same transportation network uh, enabled the uh, spread of the uh, wonders of Curry in a faster way than it w- ever yeah. would be on its own? Yes, very much so. And he is very instrumental, you know, and uh, you look at, um, there was a pattern that the colonials, the colonials followed. You know, it started out with the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Danish and the French and um, people from Denmark. And then, of course, the English were the masters at it. So um, it was really quite um, interesting how they followed each other and, uh, um, you know, and eventually it spread around the world right from the Americas to Trinidad and Tobago to Oceania. So I feel it's um, it's a story that has a lot of mystique and mystery and intrigue, and um, I love it. And this is part history, geography, and definitely there's lots of recipes in here. So is this it's, you've already done a book about curry recipes, and so how, how did you pick the recipes for this book, uh, Raghavan? Uh, this one was really based on looking at curries from around the world and see what kind of ingredients they had and how they showcased it. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, you look at Malaysian curries or Ethiopian curries or curries from China, for that matter, and <clears throat> they were all different. Um, I look at Malaysia as a melting pot and um, also land of Singapore curries, you know, so... Um, it truly, um, I thought, was um, one of those elements that um, continue to, you know, make me surprised in many ways. So uh, here we are in Tucson, where the uh, country's uh, capital of Mexican food, and I noticed uh, your poached chicken and spiced mole sauce. So let's talk about mole, yeah. and talk. let's talk about the intersection of mole and curry. I feel they are perfectly intersected, and uh, mole's um, have the complexity of a curry powder, <clears throat> and um, you weave in chocolate, and you weave in, you know, some of the techniques of roasting and toasting and grinding. You end up with a sophisticated dish that um, is very much like curry, layered, sensual, um, and I feel like... Um, Malays capture that um, essence of uh, what a curry does. What's a uh, what's a region of the world that uh, on a, maybe kind of mildly be the average person uh, reading the book would be surprised that curry is such a uh, prominent uh, ingredient in, in in the cooking in that country? Where is there a country out there or a region out there that, as you're doing this book, you're like, man, they're in the curry more than I thought they would be. Yeah, I mean, I look at, to me, one of the most classic countries that I've always said own curries more than India sometimes is Thailand. You know, they pound their pastes and herbs and spices, and they come up with these 
amazingly complex, you know, combination of flavors that they punctuate with coconut milk and other ingredients. And um, I love Thai curries, and so I think uh, that's um, fairly misunderstood. So for the we have a lot of we have a lot of home cooks that are listening to the show, um, and I think curries are still a mystery to a lot of the average American uh, home cook right now. So if someone is interested, yeah. and of course we you know we want to tell, get the on the curry trail uh, by Raghavan a year, yeah. but um, what, what, what would be uh, how would Raghavan set up the American home cook for uh, uh, diving into the world of curries? Uh, arm yourself with some good pots and pans. Yep. Um, make sure that, um, you know, when you add your curry powders, you don't burn. Oftentimes I say it's better to grind your own spices fresh. So a spice grinder, like a coffee grinder that is reserved for spices, um, actually are quite, um, instrumental in delivering those sort of you know, wild flavors into your into your curries, and so that's one of the things I would recommend. How about uh, when buying uh, the spices to make curries? Right, I assume you would. We would prefer they go to a specialty store. And are there any products out there that a product brand that you like out there that's a consistent brand when it comes to the various spices that make up a curry? Uh, plenty. I mean, you know, Penzies does a nice job, I think, with their spices and making them approachable and accessible and, and inexpensive. And, you know, you don't have to buy jars of it. I love um, shopping at co-ops where you can buy whole spices and little pouches and bulk and um, you can judicially measure them out and then grind them as and when you need them. And then you end up with these incredible flavors which i think are incomparable and if my last question for you for the home cook is if you're gonna what's a basic curry dish that you one or two curry dishes that you would say you're never done one before in your life start here what's what's number one and two i love the um the chinese curry puffs for instance um <clears throat> You know, they usually take chicken or mushrooms and stir-fry that with curry powder and then stuff them into these little convenient um, pastry shells, which are baked and um, sort of like a handheld pie. And um, um, I think that's an excellent way of sampling something different. Um, for something with a little bit more oomph, you know, I love the noodles. The Singapore rice noodles are excellent. And that, um, you know, makes it really quite um, it's substantial, and I love it. And I love the texture of noodles. And so, um, and if you like noodles, you can't go wrong with it. Well, Raghavan, thanks for the time. Thanks for writing the book on the Curry Trail. Uh, heal up, get better with uh, what you're what you're dealing with, Thank and uh, we'll uh, hopefully we'll we'll, we'll talk to you soon on an, on another book. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Take care. All right. Take care. That's Raghavan Iyer. The book is On the Curry Trail, and uh, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Really just a beautiful book, and uh, the recipes in it are 
pretty pretty i i i was checking it out uh, yesterday and the different menu the what i like about it a grid cross section of global curries and nothing too crazy and i would tell you that you know lili's oriental market on lachoy and orange grove is probably a great place to start off in relation to looking for your various stuff for curries so all right let's go to break christopher d simone esq and um we're making it happen it's uh Glenn Miller's birthday today, along with Roger Daltrey and Harry Belafonte. So quite a potpourri of angry music for the shock jock for my girlfriend, Laura Conover. Wink, wink. Wake up, Tucson. 10th of the voice, local news and talk. All right. Thanks to Raghavan Ayer, who obviously was under the weather doing. He only has, the poor guy's only got like probably uh, 13 more interviews today. So I'm sure we were on the early end of the spectrum. So, well, maybe he started on the East Coast. Maybe he's getting close. I don't All right. Know. So, anyway, keep keep Raghavan in your prayers. You bet. Um, but I appreciate- great book, interesting, uh, interesting subject matter, interesting story. Oh yeah, it's, it, you know how it's a how beautiful book. Food weaves through exploration, right? Sure. And, and linking communities, and just uh, he did a nice job, I think, kind of weaving that story. Right. So, food's part of your your culture's identity. Right. And then as, and, you know, there's always those truisms in life, right? One is uh, a lot of us don't feel like cooking. <laughs> right. And also when, when, when you taste food that is good and well-prepared and good for you, sometimes not good for you, um, we, we get the endorphin pop <laughs> in our head and our body remembers those positive feelings about eating something that's well prepared. And then when we start tasting things that are different and out of our wheelhouse, that's part of life, right? And so then when we were talking about, you know, he wanted to go a little too much on the colonialists, you know, it's like, hey, I, I get what you're saying. Let's not turn this into the, the white man's evil curry book. Let's just do a curry book, right? Okay. Uh, but really that that network of transportation through the English Empire, that's where it starts, right? Okay, it's going to go off to their neighbors geographically, but the global thing really starts where it goes to England first, right? And then all of a sudden, it goes from there, right? Um, but uh, and the idea that those 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 food cultures, right? If as I, when I when I was doing the food tours with Grayline, remember doing doing research for you know because we had it in different tour uh, brochures and things like that. And you're trying to do some background for the guides because I couldn't guide all of them all the time, right? But there's a line somewhere in there about, again, identifying the easiest way to know about a group of people is through their food, right? St. Saint Francis says, preach the gospel and then when only necessary, talk, right? And so these different thing ways of learning about people have nothing that sometimes the best ways are not talking, it's eat their food. Sometimes uh, it's not a straight line. Yeah, true, sometimes yeah. right. You know, and so that's what I. That, that's why the food part, as growing coming up from an Italian family, right? And I saw the 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 um, the 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 family that gathered around in small, medium, and large bunches, always around food, right? That's just you know, there's so many cultures who do it that way. And then growing up with parents who like to cook and then growing up in the, uh, I think also growing up in my dad's business, which was an import business that imported food from all over the Mediterranean. As I always tell people, I grew up with the best ingredients ever, right? Imported cheese, 
uh, cured meats, olives, olive oil from all uh, Greece, Spain, Italy. And maybe before a lot of grocery stores did, weren't responding to their customers' uh, educated palates. Correct. Right. Right, it starts in specialty stores. It really started in I, I would if if you, so we had we had little groceries. Uh, our main clients, right, were little grocery stores, okay. And then it mattered what neighborhood in New York they were in because we were in Brooklyn, right. Um, so we were at this place called the Brooklyn Terminal Market, which was near JFK Airport, is where the business was, and it was all big warehouses. It's where Jimmy and uh, Maury pulled off the Lufthansa heist, right, and. The reason it was there is because stuff was coming off the planes at JFK and going right over there for sale, retail, or wholesale. So when I grew up, it, it gave me the, it, it started my global appreciation for cuisines because I grew up with stuff from other countries. Right? I, so I was the snobby kid when my, my buddies at, 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 the, at the cafeteria were having uh, their uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. There's nothing wrong. I have great admiration for peanut butter and jelly, but I was the jerk with the uh, soprasata salami and prosciutto sandwich on Italian bread with really good Italian olive oil drizzled on top. <laughs> you know, and so, and I think that as I, as I grew up and then, I, you know, and I grew up with so many cuisines in New York, right? That's one of the great things about New York. Every cuisine on the planet is somehow findable in New York. Right, especially in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, right? More than it would be here. But look at Tucson, right? I mean, I keep telling you what a, what a, I've been telling you before anything else, right? That the potpourri of cuisines in this town is off the charts. Your guy on Oracle, where we had lunch last time, Chef Alisa. Oh my gosh, that was so good. Right, right. So between that, the Jamaican places, uh, I mean. I got Zamam's, uh, Five Points, Cafe Desta. Caribbean place, uh, Janet Ray's over on 22nd. And I mean, you you can, Polish Cottage, I mean, you can get anything yep. here, right here. And uh, so that's, to me, that's, you know, life's too short to eat crap food. And why would you just stay in your little boring lane of your food? Right? And so when I, when I see some of the folks in Tucson are like, uh, you know, uh, you know that, that cultural appropriating crap, right? I got no time for that. All right. It's so stupid, right? What you don't get is when they say you're culturally appropriating my food, right? The right answer, the right mindset is, right, is you're learning more about my culture. In, through, a, in through, a sneaky way. In a sneaky way. Right? That's what's cool about it. I mean, that's... And, and again, there's so many of these cool places. Go out there and go experience these, these families sharing this food with you, right? I mean, that's why I love family-owned joints. I just, my thing, my thing about uh, when chains or whatever, and I eat it, you know, I'll, I'll go to In-N-Out Burger once in a while, whatever, right? But it talks about like chains, right? People are like, why are you, why are you, why are you hammering about Portillo's, right? Because they're open. I'm just saying there's a guy three blocks down that's doing Chicago better. Maybe not hot dogs. Right, he doesn't do hot dogs, right? But it's kind of the fact of, for me, the real experience is the family-owned owned joint, and you experience the food and that dynamic of that family. Right? That's that's to me. If you're gonna max out your life, right? Max out your life, and to me, getting to know those families and having them cook food and talk about why they do it or how they do it, that's part of the fun for me. So. Now,
Now I'm going to get really boring and talk about government and politics and crap. Blech. Wake up, Tucson. 10 of The Voice, local news and talk. Got a call from a listener and reminded me that it's the 50th anniversary of uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Could that be, Christopher? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Great Gig, too, so. That young lady is wailing. Wailing! We'll do a uh, we'll do a good uh, we, I can do a dark side retrospect. It was just too many good birthdays today. Oh yeah, I just thought I'd so, throw this into the mix. Sometimes yep. sometimes there's bad uh, you know birthday. It's just you know just non prog rock dearth. people. Yeah, <laughs> bad birthday defined as no prog rock. <laughs> dearth of birthday edge. Well, let's get to conspiracy theorists four thirty one cura- cur- uh, reality curator zero still. I mean, we're looking pretty good on this one. I mean, I mean, I knew we were going to come out on top before it was all over when I saw the horrible people who were telling you this junk, right? Between the de- usually despised pharma companies who now all of a sudden are our Lord and saviors. I mean, this Corona was... How a- quickly is the narrative crumbling just in the last couple of weeks? I mean, even the, even the Department of Energy... Uh, every time I think of Department of Energy... I don't know. You know, I always think of Rick Perry, the Texas governor. Remember? Sure. So Trump, I think, put him in charge of energy, right? But uh, I always remember when he was running for office, and they had the, the the big debate with ten of them on the stage or whatever. And Rick's like, uh, "It's not like Rick's dumb or anything." It's, it's, all right, but he goes, he goes, uh, "Yeah, you know what I would do? I would get rid of some of those." Uh, he was hitting me as like an extra cockier GW a little bit, right? He goes, you know what I would do? I, w- I would get rid of some departments at the in the government, right? And the the, the, the moderator goes, oh, wh- wh- where would you get rid of? And he just he's like staring in the space, right? And to the right of him was Rand Paul, and he goes, Rand, I'm oh, sorry, Ron Paul, Ron Paul. He goes, Ron, what are those departments we need to get rid of again? <laughs> well, and, and, and I'm sure, and, and Ron's like, well, probably education, energy. <laughs> he starts going through the whole thing. And Ron's like, yeah, and, and, and you know, uh, the other guy's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're like, and also that, and then of course that always reminds me of uh, Donald Trump at Jerry Falwell's university. And he goes, oh yeah. What's that verse? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I love the Bible. Yeah, the Bible. Uh, got a lot of favorite parts in there. Jerry, what's, what's, what's my favorite passage of the Bible? He says, <laughs> just hits me right in the heart, right in the heart. So Dr. Marty Macari is part of Team Reality, right? He's with the Robert Malones. I'm still figuring out that video. We, you know, real life and making money got in the way of putting up videos of Robert Malone, but we're working on it. And now a lot of people, Matt sent me the Nate Foster thing, so I got to do that too uh, from yesterday, where we found out that the police computers in the cars can actually go out and not work for at least a half a day. So, oh, we also learned that the uh, city of Tucson is using their community service officers to now be the booking agents at the Pima County Jail that we're paying Pima County to process. Isn't that something? So, I know that was on uh, Arizona Daily Star this morning. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, Now, so Marty, Dr. Marty, has the, uh, the 10 lies told by COVID experts now debunked. Here we go. We have, um, let's see what we got here. Number one, natural immunity offers little protection compared to the vaccinated immunity. 
The Lancet, which is a prestigious English journal, looked at 65 studies in 19 countries. They concluded that natural immunity was at least, at minimum, as effective as the primary COVID vaccine series. Um, I like this one. He says, since the Athenian plague of 430 B.C., (laughs) it's been observed that those who recovered after infection were protected against severe disease if reinfected. So, 430 B.C. we're going here, kids. Misinformation number two. Masks prevent COVID transmission. I mean, we keep, I mean, this keeps getting crapped on all the time. And we keep hearing losers like Dr. Cullen and Regina Romero talk about masks. Please. It's a joke. Again, the one that should have hit everyone, I always tell you, is when the California fires and they said, don't wear your COVID mask to protect you from the smoke. This is during 20 when half the West was burning down, including Tucson, right? And um, and then you say, oh, well, how big's a, a smoke particle? Well, it's a lot bigger than a COVID particle. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, so we know that's a joke. And that, uh, that, that new battery of uh, studies just came out about, this is the one the New York Times even did a full-blown story that masks uh, basically were a zero net gain on COVID transmission. Number three, we knew this one early. School closure. This is misinformation. Number uh, number three, school closures reduce COVID transmission. We knew that was a joke too, right? And so we knew the summer of twenty. We already saw the data coming in from Europe, and they still locked your kids down for another school year. I mean. Some actions early on, I think I've got a little bit bigger uh, band of tolerance for. But later on, the, especially the second full year, w- what? Oh, I, I, I could What? I, 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 I get the end of school year 2020. I can have that discussion. But we knew, we, we saw the hard data that was coming in from Europe the summer of twenty. And everyone ignored it in this what country. What a horrible <laughs> social experiment that was! You're, what an awful social experiment. Well, let's let's get gambling to, with little kids' lives. Well, and th- and then we, so then there was that UPI story that uh, Billy put up. UPI still oh, here we go. Sex attacks on teen girls rose during lockdown. CDC finds. February 26, sex attacks on teen girls rose during the lockdown measures of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is from UPI. Um, in 2020, so I said the reports found in 2021, 18% of girls experienced sexual violence within the year, while alarming 60% of female students reported feeling persistent sadness and 25% of them made suicide plans. And everyone's sitting there going, you know, Dr. Cullen should keep her job at Pima County. And this is where I have to point the finger at public health, quote unquote, experts. Yep. Because they did not balance the comparative risks. Absolutely not. And, and, and as a public health expert, you're not just an MD. Maybe you aren't an MD. You probably aren't an MD. Let me rephrase that. 
as a public health expert, you're supposed to think of all the causes, all the potential ramifications of public policy. And that's where, you know, you've you've got to point the finger at people like Dr. Cullen. Well, ignored. So she's going to tell you if she follows the CDC, right? Now, here's the thing. Remember, the, gov- Huckleberry. the government, right? The government. He's the he was the supreme health. I mean, not that we're surprised as wake up Tucson listeners, right? But Chuck Huckleberry was the supreme health authority for Pima County. Okay. Um. Remember, the CDC spent millions and millions. I'm gonna sound like Carl Sagan. Millions upon millions of galaxies. Um, millions and millions on gaming this and modeling it. And they remember they didn't follow their own playbook. That's the other thing I need. I need to start hearing in these. Uh, if Andy Biggs or Rand Paul or any of these people are going to start pulling these jerks in front of hearings, why didn't you follow the game plan? Because the original game plan did not have to do with shutting down society. That's it. Um, number four misinformation: myocarditis from the vaccine is less common than infection. Uh, public health officials downplayed concerns. They cited poorly designed studies that undercaptured complication rates. We now know that myocarditis is six to twenty-eight times more common after a vac- COVID vaccine amongst sixteen to twenty-four-year-old males. Up to twenty-eight times more likely for a healthy sixteen to twenty-four-year-old to develop myocarditis. It's a sick yoke. Misinformation number five, young people benefit from the vaccine booster. And what Dr. Marty is saying that the boosters can reduce hospitalizations in older high-risk Americans. The evidence is there was never any lower COVID mortality rate in young healthy people. Let's get Billy on the line before I go to break, and I got five more of these suckers to go. Billy, what's shaking? Oh, he's in the wind. I I can hear it. Uh, good morning. Um, you know, I, I... That's me, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I understand that. Um, uh, you know, the, the thing we have to all, all remember is that there is a reason some of this persisted as long as it did, and it has no more complicating uh, uh, intellectual uh, uh, decision-making here than the fact that you had a whole bunch of people that for the first time in their bureaucratic lives were basically told by their bosses, whatever it takes. And if that meant shutting down the world, uh, regardless of what logic would say, regardless of what common sense would say, they had free reign. And as a result, uh, you, you, there was zero incentive from, gov- from you know, the law. There was zero incentive from the elected officials that... You know, there were a few of them that had some common sense, but they, by and large, kind of were silent or uh, basically told to sit down and shut up because they didn't uh, understand. They weren't professional. They weren't an expert. Um, and, and you had this bureaucratic insanity machine that was basically turned loose on the rest of society, and there was zero incentive to do anything to even ask simple questions. Uh, it, 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 it was a self-fulfilling perpetual motion machine to a great extent Matt, and you know how about this one bill how about if you have even a question not a descending opinion even a question 
you want to kill people. How about that one? How about no, that great they, they, they went right to kill people. You are correct. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, I, I seem to remember certain things about history and what our laws and our representative form of government was supposed to be about. And uh, all of that basically got torpedoed, trashed, and uh, it, for all intents and purposes from a huge chunk of elected officials, and I'm applying that to both parties, they wanted to erase all of those things because they were inconvenient and uh, that, that megalomania that, that we all saw from a whole bunch of elected officials at the local level, at the state level, at the national level, basically were, were, there was nothing to rein them in. And any attempt to try and do so, um, you know, you, you were going to be condemned as a murderer and, um, you know... <laughs> Next time someone wants to stand up and say that, you know, this is life or death, um, it may very well be. But if we as a, as a society as a whole don't ask simple, basic questions of the quote-unquote experts, we've got no one to blame but ourselves. Amen, Brother Bill. Amen. Have a good day. 790-2040. I got five more uh, of Dr. Marty McCurry's, uh, five t- of the ten lies told during COVID that have now been disproven. So uh, you're on Wake Up. Never never forget, as we like to say, what they did to you. Never, ever forget. So probably one of the better uh, lead-in intro bump songs out there, the old Eminence Front. You're on Wake Up Tucson, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. All right, a dude from Manford Man helped write this song, his birthday today. Of course, reminds us of our great listener and historian Quinn here at Wake Up Tucson. Uh, I got to get through these. I know there's people on hold, but you guys are going to have to hold on. I got to finish up this story real quick. Um, So we're doing Dr. Marty McCarry, John Hopkins, misinformation number six. Uh, Vaccine mandates... This, this this is dedicated to uh, Rex Scott, eight, uh, Sharon, Matt, Adelita, all you people that voted for vaccine mandates, uh, all those idiots in the military who scared away some of our best and brightest because they didn't want to take your, your vaccine. Those, those people. Um, that's a story we got to figure out one day. Someone's got to figure out how much experience uh, and training money went out the door with all the people that we chased out of the military. Cause that, I bet that number will, it might be, I don't know if it's as higher as how much money we left in, uh, how much military equipment we left in Afghanistan, but I, I bet it's in the neighborhood. Uh, what else do we got? Oh, vaccine mandates increase vax rates. And what we've also learned is a recent study from George Mason details that vax mandates in nine major cities had no impact on vaccination rates. So the vaccination rates in those nine cities were not any different than the actual average out there. Oh, Marty, also, Dr. Marty also uh, adds uh, vax mandates actually had no impact on COVID transmission rates either. Misinformation number seven, COVID originating from Wuhan lab is a conspiracy theory. We've already, we've already, we've already handled this one already. We've already talked about it. The John Stewart rant, all this stuff. It's the Wuhan Institute of Virology, kids, where they were doing, oh, I don't know, uh, gain-of-function research on coronaviruses. Please. I know, I know you think most of the world is dumb, but come on, please. 
Number eight, it's important to get that second vaccine dose three or four weeks, three or four weeks after the first dose. Data was clear in spring of 21, just months after the vax rolled out, the spacing the vaccine had three months reduces by three months reduces complication rates and increases immunity. Spacing Act vaccines would have saved more lives when Americans were rationing near limited supply at the height of the pandemic. So they blew that one too. You got to get it within three weeks. So it actually caused more complications and didn't actually provide as much immunity. Number nine, data on uh, bivalent uh, vaccines were, quote, crystal clear. Dr. Ashish Jha famously said, despite the vaccine being approved using data on from... (laughs) Matt, do you remember this one? So Ashish Jha, who of course is Team Panic, said despite the said this, this, that that the uh, data was crystal clear being the vaccine being approved on data from eight mice. Eight. Ocho? Eight. Okay. Like the Ocho, that great ESPN channel I like to watch. Not eight different labs full of mice. No, eight mice. Eight actual mice. Eight mice. To date, there's never been a randomized randomized controlled trial of bivalent uh, vaccines. Dr. Marty, in my opinion, the data is crystal clear that young people should not be getting this vaccine. It would also would have spared many children myocarditis. And then number 10 is one in five people get long COVID. That's the other misinformation. CDC claims that 20% of COVID infections can't, 20% can result in long COVID. A UK study found that 3% had residual symptoms lasting 12 weeks. Um, and then Marty says, what explains the, the, the disparity? It's often normal to experience mild fatigue or weakness for weeks after being sick and inactive and not eating well. Calling these cases long COVID is the medicalization of ordinary life. That's a good line. I like that. And my last thing before I get to calls, um, so I was on the Real Clear Politics and they had this, they had all of, now we know that they gamed the numbers on all of these things, right? So I'm going to take any number that's been reported by most of these states as they're probably much higher than they should be, right? They got to justify their, they're trying to justify their bad actions, okay? But even when I look at the game numbers, I would say that if I average these all out, it's got to be under 1% fatality rate. Under 1%. So... That's using their numbers. So I'm going to assume it's lower than that. Look at all the lives we ruined for something with that small of a fatality rate. Don't get me wrong. Every life matters. But to save those lives that we thought we were saving, we destroyed millions and millions and millions and ruined millions of lives. And I hate to tell you, all because... It was a Donald Trump re-election year. It's hard to argue that. That's what it's at. That was that was the ultimate. That was there's lots of little reasons, but that's the ultimate. Let's go to the phones. 790-2040. Metro, what's up? Hey Chris, what's going on? Just living another day um, in Tucson Paradise, sir. <laughs> right on. 
Hey, uh, the only thing I wanted uh, people to, to maybe think about or consider uh, through this uh, COVID exercise that we had is that it's, it's, if nothing else, people should be walking away from this um, thinking independently for themselves and, and considering that their safety is, is their own responsibility and it's beholden upon them to, to search out the facts and beware the people that are readily offering answers and trying to cancel anyone who asks any questions. So the question uh, Metro is going to be, right, is that when all this hit, right, we saw a whole bunch of our brothers and sisters out of fear and ignorance just fall right in the line, right? We saw businesses, churches, governments, you name it. Then there were people like us who said, "Mm, I don't know about that. I mean, Chris has been doing a show talking about the distrust of government for quite a while. Now, the people that we would say kind of the ones in the middle, right? After all of this, are they still in the middle? Or did they come over mm-hmm. to our side? Or did ignorance take over? What, what would you think about those people that could be the ones that could be convinced to come over to the reality side? Well, I'd say it depends. It depends on whether or not they've learned anything from everything that's unfolded, the the lies that have come out and and been proven to have been lies or at least intentionally misleading. So I guess only time will tell if, if they've learned anything from this. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, what's the word? It's uh, inconvenient uh, to have to do all this work yourself when someone's just standing there ready to hand you all the answers. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah, like I said, it, it, it's always going to be how is it? How is the information disseminated? Right. Like the Republicans could do a really good job in the House doing hearings, bringing all of this out. But who's going to, other than Fox News, OAN, and whatever, who's going to get that out? Right. We'll even see local TV stations cover some of that stuff. And my answer is leaning into the doubt world, Metro. Right. And and my biggest thing is. The data that's being uh, perpetuated by the government being paid for by who? Who's paying for the data that they're using to support their argument? Well, as I assume us silly taxpayers and uh, the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> there you go. You got it right there at the end. <laughs> you pulled through. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I was a little worried at right. the beginning. Take care, Chris. Thanks for calling, man. I appreciate it. All right, please. Seven nine zero two zero four zero is the number. Um, so uh, what's really interesting uh, about all of this, right, is back to faith, family, and schools. I'm just going to keep saying it over and over and over again. What we learned over the disintegration of faith, family, and schools over the last 30 years is America, when, this, when all this went down, we folded like a cheap suitcase. And some of us virtue signaled about it, right? Remember when these losers ran commercials that said, stay home, ruin your life, and you're just going to be like the guys who uh, ran down the beaches of Iwo Jima? You're crazy. You are crazy. All right, tomorrow, next next two days are going to be very busy. Uh, sports intern Ryan, U.S. Congressman David Schweiker. Daniel Asia and Amy Wax, they have a special thing coming on. They'll be here at 7.30. Then the folks from Track Therapeutic Writing, what's the A, Kids? Of Tucson. I, oh, uh, Therapeutic. Track. Um, oh, damn it. I can't believe I don't remember this. That's all right. We'll, we're going to figure out by tomorrow. 
And then on Friday, Divine Bovine, Dan Spencer, the Filthy Pirate, Coffee, U of A Racetrack students, and Sean McCluskey. So... Mrs. ESQ is going to have words with me about not remembering the track acronym. That's okay. And then uh, remember, I put it up, a picture of Jim McMahon, Chicago Bears, the real cocaine bear. Anyway, everyone, thanks for a nice time. We'll see you tomorrow.